following podcast is a production of Radio Felician, the voice of Felician University and the home of alternative rock done right. Download the Radio Felician app via the Apple app or Google Play stores or stream us 24-7 worldwide at RadioFelician.com. Radio Felician, the Falcon. Welcome to Sunday Storytellers, a Radio Felician podcast series in collaboration with Felician University Libraries. This podcast is an encore presentation of a series of radio broadcasts that aired Sundays on Radio Felician throughout 2019 and 2020. This episode originally aired on Sunday, December 22nd, 2019. Sunday Storytellers Christmas Special. Celebrate the season with these timeless tales of Christmas and the true meaning of the holiday spirit. And now, Sunday Storytellers. Felician University Libraries presents Sunday Storytellers. This radio presentation is a collaborative audio project which brings together all members of our community. Felician University students, faculty, staff, administration, and alumni, as well as members of the Felician Sisters are all invited to read short works for this program. These can be original works or classics found in the public domain. I'm your host, Caitlin Kolhosi. Today, we will be sharing Christmas holiday selections from five readers. Our first reader today is Jeff Shelley, Radio Felician Station Manager, reading A Visit from St. Nicholas, more commonly known as The Night Before Christmas or Twas the Night Before Christmas from its first line. The poem was first published anonymously in 1823 and later attributed to Clement Clark Moore, who claimed authorship in 1837. The poem is one of the best known verses ever written by an American and is largely responsible for some of our conceptions of Santa Claus from the mid-19th century to today. It has had a massive impact on the history of Christmas gift-giving. And now, Jeff Shelley reading Twas the Night Before Christmas. Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore. Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, and Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the roof there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutter and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be Saint Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, 
and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and he filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Our next reader is Dr. Tara Brunoni, Doctor of Letters, Director of Community Rights and Responsibilities, and Adjunct Assistant Professor at Felician University. She will be reading an editorial called, Is There a Santa Claus? On September 21, 1897, eight-year-old Virginia O'Hanlon wrote a letter to the editor of New York Sun, and the quick response was printed as an unsigned editorial. The work of veteran newsman Francis Varcellus Church has since become history's most reprinted newspaper editorial, appearing in part or whole in dozens of languages in books, movies, and other editorials, and on posters and stamps. It has since become part of popular Christmas folklore in the United States. And now, Dr. Tara Brunoni reading, Is There a Santa Claus? Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. In September 1897, Francis Farsalis Church, editor of the New York Sun, received a letter from an eight-year-old girl named Virginia O'Hanlon. It read, Dear Editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, If you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street. On September 21st, 1897, the New York Sun printed Mr. Church's response, which read, Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is mere insect, an ant, in his intellect as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist, and you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The external light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus? You might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus, 
But even if you did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not, but that's no proof that they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders there are unseen and unseeable in the world. You tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside, but there is a veil covering the unseen world which not the strongest man nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Ah, Virginia, in all this world there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus? Thank God, he lives and lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. Our next reader is Andy Fellows, Director of Campus Ministry, reading two holiday selections. The first is The Gift of the Magi, a short story by O. Henry, first published in 1905. As a sentimental story with a moral lesson about gift giving, it has been popular for adaptation, especially around Christmas time. The plot and its twist ending are well known, and the ending is generally considered an example of comic irony. The Gift of the Magi was initially published in the New York Sunday World on December 10, 1905, and the following year in book form in O. Henry's anthology, The Four Million. The story was allegedly written at Pete's Tavern on Irving Place in New York City. Now, Andy Fellows reading O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home, a furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity, when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. 
Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder bag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go very far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly, she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within 20 seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again, nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sophonerie, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophonerie. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off, and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. 
It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his steps on the stair, away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying a little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. 
It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden, serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week, or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy. And then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them, without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile that, and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here, I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. 
everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. For Andy's second reading, he will be sharing Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, The Three Kings. Longfellow, one of the most famous American poets of all time, wrote the poem to tell the story of the wise men traveling to meet Jesus at his birth. The poem is included in Flight the Fifth, the fifth volume of Longfellow's 1863 poetry collection, Birds of Passage. The Three Kings by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Three kings came riding from far away, Melchior and Gaspar and Baltazar. Three wise men out of the east were they, and they traveled by night, and they slept by day, for their guide was a beautiful, wonderful star. The star was so beautiful, large and clear, that all the other stars of the sky became a white mist in the atmosphere, and this they knew that the coming was near of the prince foretold in the prophesy. Three caskets they bore on their saddle bows, three caskets of gold with golden keys. Their robes were of crimson silk with rows of bells and pomegranates and furbelows, their turbans like blossoming almond trees. And so the three kings rode into the west, through the dusk of the night, over hill and dell, and sometimes they nodded with beard on breast, and sometimes talked as they paused to rest, with the people they met at some wayside well. Of the child that is born, said Balthazar, good people, I pray you, tell us the news, for we in the east have seen his star, and have ridden fast, and have ridden far, to find and worship the king of the Jews. And the people answered, you ask in vain, we know of no king but Herod the Great. They thought the wise men were men insane, and they spurred their horses across the plain, like riders in haste who cannot wait. And when they came to Jerusalem, Herod the Great, who had heard this thing, sent for the wise men and questioned them, and said, Go down unto Bethlehem, and bring me tidings of this new king. So they rode away, and the star stood still, the only one in the gray of morn. Yes, it stopped. It stood still of its own free will, right over Bethlehem on the hill, the city of David, where Christ was born. And the three kings rode through the gate and the guard, through the silent street, till their horses turned, and neighed as they entered the great inn-yard. But the windows were closed, and the doors were barred, and only a light in the stable burned. And cradled there in the scented hay, in the air made sweet by the breath of kine, the little child in the manger lay, the child that would be king one day, of a kingdom not human, but divine. His mother Mary of Nazareth, sat watching beside his place of rest, watching the even flow of his breath, for the joy of life and the terror of death were mingled together in her breast. They laid their offerings at his feet. The gold was their tribute to a king. The frankincense, with its odor sweet, was for the priest, the paraclete, the myrrh for the bodies burying. And the mother wondered and bowed her head, and sat as still as a statue of stone. Her heart was troubled, yet comforted, remembering what the angel had said of an endless reign and of David's throne. Then the kings rode out of the city gate with a clatter of hoofs in proud array, but they went not back to Herod the Great, for they knew his malice and feared his hate, and returned to their homes by another way. Our next reader is Dr. Ronald Gray, Vice President of Student Affairs and Dean of Students at Felician University. 
Dr. Gray will be reading a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called Ring Out Wild Bells. It was published in 1850, the same year that he was appointed Poet Laureate. The poem forms part of In Memoriam, Tennyson's elegy to author Henry Hallam, his sister's fiance who died at the age of 22. According to a story widely held in Waltham Abbey, the wild bells in question were the bells of the Abbey Church. According to the local story, Tennyson was staying at High Beach in the vicinity and heard the bells being rung on New Year's Eve. In Memoriam by Alfred Lord Tennyson Ring out, wild bells, to the wild sky The flying cloud, the frosty light The year is dying in the night Ring out, wild bells, and let him die Ring out, the old, ring in the new Ring, happy bells, across the snow The year is going, let him go Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind. For those that here we see no more. Ring out the feud of rich and poor. Ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out a slowly dying cause and ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, pure laws. Ring out the want, the care of the sin, the faithless coldness of the times. Ring out, ring out my mournful rhymes, but ring the fuller minstrel in. Ring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right. Ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand wars of old. Ring in the thousand years of peace. Ring in the valiant man and free, the larger heart, the kinder hand. Ring out the darkness of the land. Ring in the Christ that is to be. For our final poem today, Rebecca Driscoll will be sharing Desiderata by Max Aramon. Rebecca is the part-time librarian on the Rutherford campus. Desiderata is her favorite poem because of its timeless advice and hopeful message. Max Aramon was a 20th century American writer, poet, and lawyer who often wrote on spiritual themes. Desiderata, published in 1927, is his best-known work. The Latin title may be loosely translated as Things Desired. Now, Rebecca Driscoll reading Desiderata by Max Ehrman. Desiderata by Max Ehrman. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste, and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly, and listen to others, even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexatious to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain or bitter, for always there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. 
Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals, and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself, especially do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all aridity and disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune, but do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe. No less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labors and aspirations, in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. If you like what you hear and would like to volunteer to be a Sunday storyteller in the new year, please email either Felician University Libraries at library@felician.edu or Radio Felician at radiostation@felician.edu. Sunday Storytellers is produced by Jeff Shelley of Radio Felician and Allison Cole of Felician University Libraries. Our executive producer is Jody Shelley, director of Felician University Libraries. On behalf of Radio Felician and Felician University Libraries, we wish a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of our listeners and the greater Felician community. May God bless you and your family with peace and joy for the year to come. May goodness and light follow you this Christmas and for all your days. I'm Kaylin Kulhosi. This podcast has been a production of Radio Felician, the voice of the Franciscan University of New Jersey. Visit us anytime at RadioFelician.com. Want to send an email? Reach out at radiostation at Felician.edu. Radio Felician, the Falcon.